0: This is Fighting for Fair, the podcast that brings you true stories about social justice. Remarkable Australians share stories about fighting for their right to a fair go. I'm Corinne Grant. I'm a graduate lawyer and I'm passionate about social justice and standing up for what's right. 400 Days Windowless Rooms. 10,000 kilometres from home. Peter Grester was conducting routine reporting on the unfolding political crisis in Egypt when he was unjustly imprisoned and accused of crimes he never committed. And while Peter is now safe back in Australia, he's still tormented by the fact that for so many, this isn't the case. Today on Fighting for Fair, we meet four Egyptian civilians who became Peter's greatest lifeline who taught him the true meaning of bravery in the hardest of circumstances.
1: I knew I was in trouble when they locked the cell door behind me. I found myself in a tiny concrete cell, about eight foot square, as best as I could estimate. In one corner there was a leaky tap for water dripping into a sink. There was another hole in the ground a squat toilet in another corner that stank of urine and feces. High on one wall there was an exhaust fan that was blowing air into the cell. Above me there was a light that was in a cage and there was no switch to turn it off. And there was a door with a tiny hatch that the guards were able to open and close from the outside. That was it. There was no furniture, no bed, no mattress, no table, no chairs. And in that tiny concrete box, about two metres square, there were 16 guys. Some of them had been in that space for the better part of six months, And, and frankly, as far as I could see, they were going crazy, they were going nuts. I remember them talking and chatting and laughing and joking all through the night, until five, six in the morning, they were still at it, hysterically at times. It, was, it, it, it seemed crazy. And I remember turning at one point to a young student who was in, the, in that cell, um, a student who could speak just a little bit of English. And I asked him what was going on, and he said, look, it, it makes no sense to me. He said, I, I, I can't understand any of this. I can't understand what's going on here. And finally, when sleep did come, it was in a tangle of limbs and bodies. We were so tightly packed that I can remember feeling the pulse of at least two guys next to me at any one point. After watching what was happening to the other guys, I started to realize that the greatest responsibility, the greatest challenge in prison was to manage my psychology, was to say, stay mentally strong. After a period there, we were... I was moved out into another cell, this time marched down the corridor of a prison, of a new prison. And as I walked down, I remember hearing prisoners call out to me in Arabic. Of course, I couldn't understand what they were saying to me, and so I shouted back at them that, I'm sorry, I, I only speak English. And a voice came back and said, Who are you? Where are you from? And I said, My, my name is Peter, Peter Grestha. And he said, the uh, what are you doing here? And I said, I'm, I'm a journalist. I don't know. And he said, ah, you're the Al Jazeera journalist. And I said, yes. He said, welcome to our home. Finally, the guard stopped at a cell. I opened it up and pushed me inside. And instead of that overstimulated environment that I was in, in, in before, I found myself in solitary confinement. This time there was a bed and then again there was a toilet and water, but nothing else, no books, no writing material, no reading material, not even watches to mark the time. I remember seeing in one section of the wall a strange collection of markings, little scratches in parallel with a couple of scratches uh, slashing through them, and I realized that it was a calendar. Someone had marked off the weeks. There were five scratches vertically and two slashes across them, I remember seeing there were about 30 of those. And I realised that I could well be in that concrete box on my own for a very long time. And so in that space, in that void, I realised that the first thing to do was to try and impose some kind of structure on on the day. The problem with prison is that you're faced with this void, this vast empty space that stretches out before you, a bit like a fog, with no definable ends to it, no limits. It must end at some point, but you can't see it. It has no structure. It's formless. And so I realized that I needed to find a structure. I needed to impose structure on it. Of course, right across the Islamic world, there is the call to prayer. And so five times a day, we could hear the Mezuin calling out to, to the faithful. And that would provide some kind of rhythm to the day. I also remember that in the mornings the sun would shine through a small window that I had high on the wall at the back of the cell. And it would project a beam of light through the bars onto the wall opposite. I realized that I could use that as a kind of sundial to help me work out how long an hour was. The gap between calls to prayer was about four hours. And, and so if I broke that distance that the travel the sun traveled into four rough, roughly equal spaces, I could figure out roughly how, far, how long an hour would last. It was a way of keeping track of time, of measuring the distance and, and, and helping myself maintain the discipline of keeping fit. I'd exercise for about an hour a day. I would meditate for about an hour a day. But of course, still in that void your mind starts to do crazy things. I started to wonder why I was really in prison. The charges against me were crazy. I was accused of being a member of a terrorist organization, of supporting a terrorist organization, of financing a terrorist organization, of broadcasting false news to undermine national security. And yet, all I had been doing was working as a reporter, doing pretty routine journalism. Nothing, nothing unusual, nothing particularly dramatic, no big investigations. We were simply doing our jobs. And so the gap between what I was accused of doing and what I actually did was so vast that I started to think, well, if there's no relationship between those two things, perhaps I'm in here for some more profound reason. Perhaps this is some way of the universe punishing me for all of the bad things that I've done over the course of my life. For the wrongs that I've committed other people, for the hurt that I've, I've done, perhaps for the relationships, the string of broken relationships that I've left behind. Of course, looking back, it seems crazy now, but at the time, I was trying to make sense of it. I remember each day, the guards would would open up the doors to the cells next to me and uh, the other prisoners would walk up and down the corridor. And although they weren't supposed to, occasionally they would stop beside my cell, poke their fingers through the mesh and have very whispered conversations, saying things like, Be strong, Mr. Peter. We're with you, Mr. Peter. You can make it through this. And there was one voice that was particularly soothing to me. He came and he said to me, I've been in prison under every regime that Egypt has had since Hosni Mubarak. Mubarak put me in prison, then the Supreme Council of the Armed Forces imprisoned me, then the Muslim Brotherhood put me in jail, and now it's the interim government. And he said, I've got a lot of experience with this. And he said, I know that by now you'll be struggling. He said, There is one thing that I've learned, though. There's one thing through this whole experience that I've come to understand, and that is, no matter what you're going through, you will not survive this. You will not make it through unless you're prepared to make peace with yourself. And it was an extraordinarily powerful thing that allowed me to put the past where it belonged, in the past, and focus on the present. Eventually, after almost two weeks, the guards finally let me out of solitary confinement, and I, I met the rest of the, of the cellmates that filled that block. The man that spoke to me was Allah Abdul Fattah, a remarkable blogger, charismatic man who was able to mobilize hundreds of thousands, millions of people onto the streets around the January 25th revolution. A man whose words were so powerful that the authorities were terrified of, of his ability to mobilise political support. He was a man who was passionately devoted to democracy, to freedom, to human rights issues, which I think is why the authorities found him so threatening. There were others like Ahmed Meher, who was the leader of the April 6th movement, the organisation that used social media to help organise the protests. There was his deputy, Mohammed Adel, another jolly young man who with a round belly and a and a really cheerful jolly laugh and then there was Ahmed Doma who was an incredibly charismatic young poet who also with the power of his words was in, had inspired hundreds and perhaps thousands of young people to take to the streets and they told me a lot about why they were fighting for what they were fighting for fighting for justice for democracy for freedom, fighting for a system that gave equal rights to all of Egypt's citizens, that gave everyone an equal opportunity. And the more we talked, the more I started to reassess the reasons that I was in there. If I couldn't understand the connections between what I was doing and what I was accused of doing, I came to understand that it wasn't so much about anything that I had done, so much as about what I had come to represent. These other prisoners showed me that that the authorities weren't really that interested in the work that I had done, so much as wanting to send a message to all of the journalists in Egypt that you will not speak to the opposition, you will not speak to the Muslim Brotherhood. They were trying to intimidate the press, trying to silence them into avoiding anything that might undermine the regime. And so I realized that I had a choice. I could either fight the charges on the basis that the prosecutor wanted me to fight them, and that is defend my journalism. Of course, I was more than happy to defend my journalism. I was proud of my work. I was confident that it was accurate and balanced and fair, and although we might have made one or two mistakes, there was no way we could have been accused of broadcasting false news to undermine national security. But that would have meant focusing on me and my work, and it would have missed the bigger issue. It would have missed the attack on that fundamental freedom of the press that is so profoundly basic to any functioning democracy. And so I wrote two letters calling it out for what it was, as an attack on the press, as an attempt to silence free journalism, and we smuggled it out of prison. Those letters changed the campaign from an attempt to get someone out of prison who'd been wrongly imprisoned for his work into the much bigger issue of defending that fundamental freedom of the press. We became a core celeb, representing not just ourselves but the wider institution of journalism and the public's right to know. Well, as the days stretched into weeks, we found ourselves in a kind of rhythm, a a sense of security came with that rhythm. Each, each morning there would be the call to prayer, there'd be food, there'd be a period of exercise, there'd be talking and conversation, we'd go back into our cells, there'd be more meditation, then there'd be lockdown, the cell would fall, fall silent, I'd go to sleep and the, day would, the, the next day would begin again. This established a routine rhythm, a cycle, almost like a drum beat, day after day after day, a sense of security and a sense of calm. Then, one night, after lockdown, after the lights had been turned off, we could hear, once again, the strange shattering of the silence, of the peace. We could hear boots, we could hear talking, we could hear the clanking of keys, the jangling of keys in locks, as guards made their way through the cell block, finally down the corridor. People were talking to each other, were shouting at each other, trying to find out what was going on, and finally, The feet stopped at my cell. The key went into the lock and my door swung open. The guard said, come with us, you're leaving. And as I was marched out, all of my old colleagues, my new friends, shouted to me and said, be strong, Mr. Peter, we're with you all the way. I was moved from there into a cell with my two other Al Jazeera colleagues. We were placed on trial. We were convicted of terrorism offenses and sentenced to seven years. And through that whole period, the campaign started to ramp up to an extraordinary level. Literally millions and millions of people around the world were talking about us, tweeting about us, up to and including President Barack Obama. And finally, after 400 days in prison, the Egyptian authorities relented to the pressure. I was released, and with my brother, we went to Cyprus on my first day of freedom. And although I remember walking out along the beach in Cyprus with my jeans rolled up and my feet in the sand and the water around my ankles, I remember a huge sense of relief, but also a strange sense of regret and having to leave behind these extraordinary fi- figures, these extraordinary characters. I was in prison not because of who I was or what I did, but because I would what I had come to represent. I was there because the authorities found me politically convenient. But the others were there knowingly. They knew that what they were doing, what they were fighting for, was going to put them... was highly likely to land them in prison and still they chose to fight on for what they believed in. And yet they still pushed forward. They still had the courage of their convictions. And in that respect, that makes them the real heroes of this story. I was out of prison because I was able to harness extraordinary support, because I was a foreigner... And yet those guys who were every bit as deserving of support as I was, remained in prison on the day that I walked free. And they're there to this day.
0: Peter's story has a happy ending. Thanks to international pressure, he was released from prison and he's now free to be a champion for freedom of the press around the world. But his story is tinged with sadness, because while he's free, millions of people are unjustly imprisoned every day in their pursuit of democracy, with little hope of freedom or a fair trial. That's why we must continue to fight against the wrongful persecution of millions of people across the globe. Because in a fair and just society, we all have the right to live without threat of persecution or oppression. Fighting for Fair is a partnership between Mamma Mia and Morris Blackburn, Australia's leading social justice law firm. They believe that fairness is a universal right, and to live in a fair and just society, we need to fight for the rights of others as much as our own. Next time on Fighting for Fair... Kon Karapanagiatidis believes Australia should feel like home for everyone.
1: When I started the Asylum Secret Resource Centre, it was about trying to create a home of hope. Because that's all refugees are seeking, a place where they belong.
0: He's a human rights champion and a voice for the voiceless. But at the age of 18, he wanted to end his own life.
1: I wanted the earth to just swallow me whole, completely, right then and there. So I didn't have to suffer anymore.
0: Learn about Con's struggle to find his place before he could help others find theirs. Next week on Fighting for Fair. You can share these stories of social justice and help champion the fight against unlawful persecution in a couple of ways. Tell a friend about this podcast or share it with someone you think would like it via the sharing links on your podcast app. Subscribe to the show. This small act of support means we know we are getting the message out there. Rate it in iTunes. By leaving a rating and a review, it means more people can see this podcast pop up in the podcast charts. All of these things really do help us to get these incredible stories out there. Never forget the power of a story to create the change you want to see. I'm Corinne Grant, and this show was produced by Beth Gibson. Podcast concept created by Morris Blackburn. Executive producer of podcasts at Mamma Mia! is Monique Bowley. Head of entertainment is Holly Wainwright.